1: The
0: more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Welcome, everybody, to the Rabbi Daniel Lapin Show. I'm delighted that you are choosing to invest uh, some of your very valuable time and uh, you know that my solemn pledge is to make absolutely sure that the return on investment is worth while for you. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, you know I appreciate each and every one of you that that downloads and that listens to this podcast, and that is of course exactly what stimulates me. And uh, it is because of my esteem for your integrity, uh, my admiration for your dedication to truth, that I, from time to time, am willing to step into dangerous territory. And what I mean by dangerous territory is um, embarking on a topic that is going to contain within it uh, many quotes, many observations, uh, many original insights and statements each of which, uh, taken out of context, could be, uh, frankly, could be used and would be used to mount uh, a very painful Internet attack on me. Uh, this obviously has happened to me many times in the past. It usually follows uh, a television appearance where I speak the truth. Uh, very often it follows a speech or, a, uh, uh, or an article I write and, of course, it's possible on a podcast as well. So I'm giving you fair warning. I'm, I'm letting you know that you are going to be hearing in this podcast, and the the topic is male-female relationships, you are going to be hearing things that are going to evoke considerable cognitive dissonance. Uh, I'm going to be talking about things and uh, making observations that, uh, for many of you, uh the reaction will, will, will verge on uh, a discomfort, violent disagreement, and, yes, I've, I've, and even nausea. I've had listeners tell me that they get a physical, nauseous reaction uh, listening to me sometimes. Uh, and, again, as, as somebody who has suffered from seasickness on extremely uh, rough, uh, small sailboat ocean passages – I, I, I find it difficult to summon up genuine empathy and heartfelt sympathy uh, for people who claim that my words make them feel nauseous. But, uh, but there it is. So I want you to know that I am, I'm well aware that I'm sharing something that uh, is not going to feel like a massage with warm butter. It isn't. It, it is, it is going to feel and sound somewhat challenging. And uh, all I ask you to do is, is do essentially what, what I did when, uh, when I was a student. Uh, and this may be something I've not shared with you, but in, in the Jewish tradition, when, when, when we study in a very traditional yeshiva, and, and I did. I mean, I studied in, uh, uh, in theological colleges, uh, Bible schools. We call them uh, yeshivot, uh, literally translates uh, to a place where you sit. And, um, and part of that is just the recognition that there is no shortcut. You have to sit and confront the material, and a certain period of time is what it takes. But there's something else that's very interesting, and that is that um, my father uh, insisted, and, and indeed it, it, it worked out that way, that I join uh, an elite group of students. Who literally served our teachers in sometimes menial ways, and uh, and uh, I mean, this, we're not just talking about running errands for them, but uh, uh, tying shoelaces for an older for an older teacher, man in his eighties who had trouble um, doing his own shoelaces, and I was taught to, to do those and uh, and to consider it to be an enormous uh, privilege, and indeed, other students uh, envied me. And they envied the other uh, students in in our cadre uh, of students who had been given, if you like, the prestige and the privilege of uh, taking care of our teachers in, as I say, in in very often menial ways. Sometimes it was pleasant. Sometimes it was driving them uh, to some event or occasion they had to be at, which was a pleasure because then you had a car drive with them, you had them to yourself. So that 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 was good payback. But, uh, but other times you were just doing menial work. And, uh, and we, we learned to, to look at it with, with love and with a, the, the heart, the genuine heart of a servant. Ancient Jewish wisdom says, you know, train yourself with your, your relationship to God and to his message to be like a servant um, who's, who's not serving just because he wants to get his salary at the end of the week, but out of love and dedication. And, and we learned that. Well, here's the valuable thing that that taught us. What it gave us was the um, ability to humble ourselves to the material. And what that means is to tamp down the instinctive derision that arises inside each and every one of us the first time we hear something with, with which we don't agree. And, you know, if you think about it, whenever you're talking, you're saying things you already know, right? Right. But when you're listening, you might be hearing things you don't yet know. And so the key thing is to just sit with it for a little bit. That's the meaning of that word, to sit with it for a little bit so as that you can roll it around your heart and your mind and weigh it up and measure it against your life experiences and your own observations and uh, perhaps reach the point where you say, wow, you know what? I may have been mistaken up till now. This, this, is, this is a different way of looking at things. Um, I've, got to, I've got to be open to this. Let me listen to it. I don't know it's right yet, but at least let me give it equal weight to what I thought I knew, and I'll, I'll then watch and see uh, whether my old way or this interesting new approach does a better job of explaining how the world really works, and that's uh, all I'm saying, that when I mention something or explain something on the podcast, um, I'm not asking you to believe that it's true. I'm not asking you to accept it on face value. Of course not. There's no reason why you should do that. But what I am asking you to do, to, to make your investment of time worthwhile, I am asking you to, to listen, to listen carefully, and to suppress your instinctive tendency uh, to throw it out, to mock it, to ridicule it, because it's different from what you already believe. Does that make some sense? I hope so, because it dramatically changes uh, the extent to which you actually derive valuable benefit from the time we're spending together now, or whether it's, it's simply some time that goes by, um, mildly interesting, perhaps slightly entertaining, and at the end of it, you've got absolutely nothing to show for your time. Well, that would be terrible. You may as well just have been watching television or, or YouTube on your, on your smartphone. Uh, if that's if that's the case. So very important point. Uh, as I say, don't just believe what I'm saying. Don't accept it as true. But allow evidence to guide your conclusion. So weigh it up with what you think you already know. I'm saying something that's going to disagree with what you know. Fine. Just allow the evidence to guide your conclusion. Um The trouble is that more and more in today's culture, which has become more and more an an emotional-driven culture, a culture driven by feeling, a culture driven by heart, not head, um, people become more and more trusting in their feelings. Terrible mistake. Our feelings are really bad guides, really bad guides. And uh, the problem is, that uh, today, even in so-called academic and intellectual circles, or maybe especially there, I should say, uh, m- more and more to an increasing extent, emotional advocacy overwhelms analysis. Emotional advocacy, the feelings you have about a position you already are committed to, uh, tends to overwhelm analysis. And, and that's really what cognitive dissonance means, that a term in psychology simply means that the pain of confronting an alternative view of something is just more than your being is willing to take. And so you reject information, the acceptance of which would force you to view things in a way that disagree with what you already feel, 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 deeply committed to, and uh, naturally that's what happens. So uh, I'm going to be, for instance, explaining... Uh, why it is that a wife owes physical intimacy to her husband. Whoa! Did you just hear what I said? Maybe it's better you don't. Right? Because <laughs> it's so contrary to what everybody, oh, it doesn't give you any right just because you're a husband. Yes, and there's such a thing as marital rape. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I understand. Of course, they're horrible things. But did you hear what I just said? Okay, well, we'll, we'll come back and revisit that. But I do know that that's just one example of something that um, you are very likely uh, to feel an instinctive uh, revulsion for. And there are also going to be other things in the, the course of today's podcast that will repulse you. And the difference between a useful application of the time and a total waste of time is how you handle things you hear that repulse you. If you are a student at uh, at an American major university like University of Missouri or Dartmouth or Yale or Harvard and any number of other uh, universities, if you're a student there, then you have been effectively trained, nay, effectively indoctrinated to believe that you must never be subject to ideas that conflict with what you already believe to be true. That's the new view. I can assure you without any shadow of a doubt that there will not be um, enormous scientific discoveries during the time this insanity roils the American campus. Because the whole basis of the scientific endeavor is to say, maybe everything I believe till now is wrong. Now, maybe it isn't. But I am going to explore this new hypothesis, and maybe I'll be able to debunk it, in which case I'll go back to my original theory. But what if this theory holds up and, in fact, debunks my original theory? Well, that's called progress, moving on. And so if you are, as I say, a student at, at one of these uh, campuses that are now experiencing the, the turbulence of, uh, of this uh, movement, this anti-intellectual period, this uh, infantilization of the academy, this transformation of the ivory towers of academia into uh, infantile childcare, like kindergarten, where, God forbid, students shouldn't be made to feel uncomfortable by any microaggressions or be subjected to anything that conflicts with their existing and current views on anything, well then, um, gosh, what can I say? Uh, this is probably not a good podcast you to be introduced to. I have other podcasts. This is episode number 21. So that means there are 20 others, many of which are much more pleasant, much more comfortable, much more inclined to massage you with warm butter and make you feel good. So go back and listen to one of those easier ones rather than hanging out here, right? That's what I'm going to recommend because uh, coming back I'm going to start off telling you about a, a fascinating story of a, a woman who became a, a widow at a relatively young age of, um, of about 40, and uh, she began a series of affairs with married men. And her take on that is, um, is one where I had to practice what I preach. I listened to her take on it, and I'll tell you all about it, And I had to stop and say to myself, every fiber of my being rejects this, uh, but let me listen. Let me just try and understand what's going on here. Uh, Part of this training in ancient Jewish wisdom uh, lies in the tension between Jerusalem and Athens. And this is the way it's classically put, Athens standing for the culture of Greece and the uh, foundation of Western civilization, Jerusalem standing for the spirit of Sinai, and the, uh, the the conflict between them is whether or not there is a spiritual reality in the world. Now, um, when you have a chance and you go to my website, go to the store section of my website, you will find a CD called 25.8. Uh, it's all about the holiday of Hanukkah. And Hanukkah coming always around uh, about uh, mid to late December, typically, um, usually coming very close to Christmas, um, is a time when we reanalyze two conflicting worldviews. And uh, I use it, and many Jews use it, as a time to train ourselves to learn to look at Western civilization through the lens of biblical reality rather than subject biblical reality to the lens of Western civilization. And right now, the, uh, the, the temples of Western civilization, the American University campus, um, are uh, in a fine mess. More in just a moment as soon as we return after this brief message.
1: This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440.
0: Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world
2: really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Here we go with segment two of this 21st episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And as always, I express my deep and heartfelt appreciation to you uh, for your participation. Um, the, uh, the, the product that I've created for your edification and, uh, and for your uh, education uh, that I want to speak about on this podcast is called Festival of Lights, and it's an audio CD program that is subtitled, Transform Your 24-7 Existence Into a 25-8 Life. And it's just a single CD, um, not terribly expensive, but uh, what it does do is highlight the difference in approach between a Western view of time and a biblical view of time. And, of course, one of the things I speak about constantly is the uh, very Uh, ever-present awareness of the importance of your time, the value of your time, as well as my own, and the uh, solid determination to make absolutely certain that at no point of time am I running the risk of uh, wasting your time at all. So when you have a chance to be at my website, please be sure, when you go to rabbidaniellappin.com, Go along and and take a look at an audio CD program called Festival of Lights, How to Transform Your 24-7 Existence into a 25-8 Life. And you can read about it. You can listen to an excerpt of it there as well, Um, because what we're doing, in fact, is exactly this. We are going to be taking a look at some awkward and challenging circumstances in Ordinary human affairs, uh, that our instinctive response just may not be the right one, right? There, and there are situations like that. Um, you know, what parent is there that has never reacted angrily to a child? And you know, you shouldn't do that. You should never act when you're in the grips of emotion. You should never act when you're in the grips of anger. It would be fine to say to your child. Uh, You are going to have to experience a consequence, or you may use the word punishment, whatever you prefer, whatever works better in your family. Uh, You are going to have to have a consequence for what you've done, uh, but that's not going to happen right now. I want you to go to your room, and I'll call you when it's time to come out. Well, that has a double purpose. (laughs) It lets your child spend a little time um, thinking about regret while he or she is waiting in the room. Uh, but far more importantly, it gives you a chance to cool down so is that you will not do anything irrevocable in the grip of emotions. And uh, and so that would be an example of where your instinctive way of acting is wrong. Tamper down, repress it, don't do anything. Give yourself a chance to rethink this through so as you're not acting out of instinct. You're not acting out of emotion. And so... Uh, reminding you of my caveat, my warning, which is that in the material we're going to be covering and look at, looking at, uh, you are, you are going to have instinctive feelings, perhaps of, of resistance, perhaps even of revulsion, but um, I urge you, pause on that, hold off a second, just let, let them be while we go through the material and have an opportunity to, to rethink uh, the whole thing. As we examine it, I told you it was going to be about a story. And uh, I scan um, many papers, just, you know, not for the news, because I get the news, like most of you, uh, quickly off the internet. I, I, I have an aggregator that just pulls together sources I trust. And so I don't need it for the news. But I am interested in the cultural take, I'm, I'm interested in what people are reading. And uh, I, I, I have certain papers and magazines I look at in the United States. And then there are a number of papers and magazines I do look at in, um, in Europe predominantly. I look at Canada as well. That's true. Uh, but in Europe, I look at the German news magazine, Der Spiegel, because there's cultural stuff there that I find interesting. For instance, uh, how regularly the Spiegel runs stuff on World War II, uh, you know, and, and that just reminds me that in Germany, the spirit of World War II hangs heavy in the air. It's like the elephant in the room. And it w- is one of the main reasons for Angela Merkel's position on the immigrants, because in her heart and in her mind, particularly uh, being brought up in East Germany, uh, the, the need to atone for World War II is like ever-present. And one of the papers I do look at, a uh, very useful cultural source, um, is the Daily Mail from the United Kingdom. And, uh, and so here's the story. About a, a woman who loses her husband when she's about uh, in her late 30s or early 40s about 40 maybe and she begins a series with married men and uh, she speaks about them and she she seems she seems to be a real person this does not seem to be uh, uh, a fake story it seem, seems to be uh, uh, seems to be true and she talks about the different people uh, she speaks about a Danish shipping magnate um, she says that uh, he was in his 50s and his wife had had just completely lost her libido she'd just uh, following that stage in her life she just lost interest and um, they had children they had a family and he had absolutely no interest in leaving his wife and she says um, um, she was living in London at the time this uh, Danish Uh, shipping guy traveled a lot but whenever he was in London they used to spend uh, a night together or two nights together whatever it was she says and um, it was it was it was very it was a very good time we we got on very well and um, I mean obviously he he paid her and um, and then uh, at you know at one point um, what what happened um, she said she said she traveled with him a little bit, but she never would go back with him to Denmark because she didn't want – and he didn't want to anywhere close to her home. He didn't want to humiliate his wife. He didn't want any of their family or friends to be aware of this. But uh, there, is a, there is a suggestion that if his wife didn't actually know, there's at least a suggestion that had she – it wouldn't have mattered. She'd have been just fine with that for, for a variety of reasons. At any rate, uh, that was her one. She speaks of another one. Uh, was another guy who worked for an oil company. Um, he, This was a guy who was actually separated from his wife, but they had business interests that tied them together. Real estate, they couldn't sell it because of the downturn. And so they were living unhappily together in the same home, by, but without any intimacy at all. And, uh, and so she had a relationship with him for a period of time. Then after that, there was an accountant with a big family. And she said... Uh, She's quite convinced that her affair saved the marriage and, and kept the family together. Um, she said just, you know, because of the large family and everything, uh, you know, everything going on, um, he would come home from work. And, you know, she was tired after the day. And and she brings it down to, to physical intimacy and to sex. And she says that, you know, from what the, the man told her, um, he just – he wasn't having – certain needs that he had met, and uh, this was the, the result, and, um, and the man did not want to leave his wife. She certainly would not have wanted the marriage to end, and, um, and so she says, you know, I played a role in keeping that family together, um, So uh, and then he says the, uh, the, this, this affair ended when one day uh, he came home. And uh, she uh, – his wife was waiting for him. The children were all out or in bed. She had a bottle of champagne. Uh, she was dressed um, beautifully. And uh, the spark returned to the marriage, and the guy ended the relationship. And she says, you know, um, I, I don't know that the marriage would have lasted till that point. So anyway, this, is, this is the way the, story, the stories go. And then what was more interesting, and as I say, I'm interested in the cultural aspects, and so I always take a look at, the, at the, the letters. Now, I understand that the letters are not representative. It takes a certain type of person. The letters are not representative of the people who read the story or, or what people really feel about it, but nonetheless, it was kind of interesting. And uh, generally speaking, there seemed to be uh, at least two to one, uh, in, the, in, the, in the responses, people saying, you know, you're self-serving, you're an evil, vicious person, uh, and you're just pretending to portray yourself nobly as somebody who's helped these marriages stay together. But in, in reality, this is uh, – you're a terrible, terrible person. You know, and she, she's saying, look, you know, this is uh, – nobody was harmed, and if anything, um, in all of these cases, I, I provided a, a valuable service – and, um, and the, the marriages were sustained, which ultimately is what all the women would have wanted. And, in, of course, the, the, the wives did not find out. And everything, every, or at least in, in most of the cases, in one of the cases she says she thinks the wife had an inkling of what was going on and, and sort of changed things around the family. But um, I looked at this and I started asking myself, now, you know, wait a moment. What is really going on here? Is this outrageous? Is she a horrible, wicked, evil person? Is she a home wrecker? Uh, She's having these relations with these married men. Um, Or since at no stage, she says she's very emphatic, at no stage did she ever want any of these men to marry her. She never wanted them to leave their family. She she liked her lifestyle. She had no interest in getting married to any of them. And she certainly uh, was not going to encourage that direction at all. So, maybe she's not a home wrecker and so whilst this is a uh, a very uh, dangerous area i did want to start trying to think about this and ask myself you know is this really the the worst thing imaginable from her point of view now i'm not at the moment speaking about from the men's point of view let's concede right now that what the men were doing was not right Let's concede that. But from her point of view, how bad is is her behavior? In an absolute sense, after 120 years and she has to stand before heavenly judgment, does she get a, a rueful smile from the angels who say, well, it was unconventional and uh, there might have been a better way for you to live your life. But when we weigh everything up, Overall, all on the positive side, yeah, you get to turn right and go to heaven. You actually, you actually made the world a little bit of a better place. Or is it the way many of the letter writers to the magazine, to the newspaper, hold? no, you know, you're a terrible, terrible person. So, no, you go off to the left. You're going to the hot place. Which is it? This is certainly worth a look-see. And perhaps... One of the ways we can begin to analyze this and, and try and understand a little bit of what's going on, uh, because to, to each and every one of you that is either married or would like to be married, um, there is going to be information here that, as difficult as it'll be to stomach, uh, might be interesting and actually might be useful, and that's chiefly what i like doing i like bringing ancient jewish wisdom to apply in very practical and useful ways in the areas of family and relationships and even you know finance we speak about as well and faith but um, there has to be practical value here and uh, and so maybe a place to start is to go back to summer 1995 Um, just a little bit more than, uh, what's it, 20 years, a little more than 20 years uh, from the time I'm recording this uh, in the fall of 2015. And uh, we're going back to Hollywood, California, where on one June evening, actor Hugh Grant, um, 34-year-old sensation, he was at the top of his game. He was doing incredibly well, um, very, very successful British actor. He was caught uh, having sex with a prostitute in a car uh, in Hollywood, California. Um, her name was, at the time, was Divine Brown. And um, today, by the way, she is living in a little house behind a white picket fence in a suburb of Atlanta, um, under the name of, um, S- I think Stella Thompson um, is her name now, and uh, she is, um, she, she reminisces and she says, you know, it was just a, a $50 trick, as she put it, uh, in order to try and help pay the bills, uh, she says, and the Lord favored me, that's how she put it, she said, it turned into a million dollar bonanza and it changed her life. Okay, so that – I'm not saying that all of this is wonderful, but it's just – that's just background story. But the most important part of it is that while this was going on, uh, Hugh Grant was in a long-time relationship uh, with his girlfriend, Liz Elizabeth Hurley. Uh, she was 30 years old, and at the peak of her field. she was an actress and a model. And uh, look, she, n- is, she is a beautiful woman today at the age of 50. Uh, she was a stunning woman back in 95. So his live-in longtime girlfriend is Elizabeth Hurley. And he's caught having sex with a prostitute. And by the way, I've got to tell you, by no stretch of the imagination, and you can see the arrest mugshots, and granted that they don't make people look their best, but by no stretch of the, imagi- of the uh, imagination was Divine Brown, a good-looking prostitute. What do you think is going on? Why would a guy living with Elizabeth Hurley go and spend $50 with, frankly, not a very attractive prostitute? Why? What is going on there? Do you understand it? And if not, stay tuned and don't go away. Because uh, when we come back, I'm going to tell you. Meanwhile, go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, take a look at a product, at a resource. It's an audio CD program, which you can download right away if you want, um, or you can buy the hard CD. It'll come to you in the mail. It's called Festival of Lights. Um, It's uh, specifically for this time of the year when we're celebrating Hanukkah and people are celebrating Christmas, uh, and it's called Transform Your 24-7 Existence Into a 25-8 Life. And uh, I think you you will like reading about it. I think it has information you would be interested in, so I'd like you to be aware of it. Back in a few moments with uh, Hugh Grant and Elizabeth Hurley, not in person, but in concept.
0: Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. America WK with your host, Andrew WK. Whatever that
1: mysterious feeling
0: is, whatever that inspiration, that vitality, that's, that life force that seems to descend or come up into you and give you this power, give you this excitement about life, this, this undeniable energy. I mean, you feel it when it's, I'm feeling it. When it happens, it is undeniable, and we must respect that feeling. America WK, Saturdays, 10 a.m. to noon on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network
2: And we're moving right along Your Rabbi, that's me Revealing how the world really works Here on the Rabbi Daniel Lapin Show And we're in the uh, We're starting the third segment of Third out of six segments by the way Of today's show The 21st episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show That's just by way of a roadmap, So you know where we are And uh I said that uh, we need to try and understand why it is that a successful, good-looking, 34-year-old young actor by the name of Hugh Grant uh, would have left his lover, his longtime live-in girlfriend, Elizabeth Hurley, the beautiful model and actress, and would go out on the prowl in Hollywood uh, in June of that year and uh, get himself, uh, pick up a – Frankly, not a very attractive-looking prostitute, and um, and then get you know he got uh, busted and uh, he was um, humiliated. Uh, obviously, he lost the relationship and many other things happened to him as well. This was just all bad for him. But look, you know there there are some temptations we can all understand, right? All right, if if you're a man and uh, and you know. You had the opportunity to spend the night with Elizabeth Hurley back then. And you said to me, you know, I, I risked everything. Uh, I don't know how I could. It was so wrong of me. It was terrible. I, I betrayed my marriage. I mean, all of these things I did were wrong. I would say, you know what? I understand it. I, I, obviously, it was wrong. And all I can say is that you have to pray never to be put in a position where that is the, the temptation. You've got, to, you've got to build barriers because you can never know. Look, um, I have been faithful to my marriage since the day we were married. I have been. Uh, would I tell you now, and I always will be, that would transform my earlier statement into a, a silly sentiment instead of a serious statement. And I don't like silly sentiments. I like serious statements. And why would it be nothing but a silly sentiment if I said, and I will never be unfaithful to my marriage? And the answer is because of uh, a piece of ancient Jewish wisdom that was originally uttered by one of the great rabbis of uh, 2,000 years ago. His name was Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, and he said – don't be sure of yourself until the day of your death. And if he could say that, then Rabbi Daniel Lappin can definitely say that as well. And so um, what have I always done to, to sort of you – know, how, how did I get to this point? Uh, do, do you think I was, I was never tempted? Do you think that there's never – my eyes have never strayed? No, of course not. That's not the point. The point is that um, I, I knew that I never wanted to be tested. I never wanted to be put in the position of having to say, <laughs> do I accept this overture and this invitation, or do I stay faithful to my marriage? And so uh, I followed and continue to follow, to the best of my ability, an ancient Jewish wisdom principle which is do not ever be in a secluded, alone situation with a woman, where there is the possibility of something un- unhappy, something not good happening. And so, uh, even if if I uh, you know if, if I had to if I had to travel, and there were and there was going to be uh, a female uh, associate, that was going to be. You know, we never traveled together, always traveled uh, separate flights, uh, stayed at separate hotels, always making sure I was never secluded or alone with her. And, um, and you know, you, you think back to, to times where people have had bad situations. I'm thinking of Supreme Court Clarence Thomas, uh, who, along with his wife, Virginia, endured incredible suffering at the hands of Anita Hill. And depending on your political posture, you either believe her or you don't. Uh, based on the evidence, as I saw it, and based on the fact that, uh, that I know Justice Thomas and I know his wife, um, I don't believe it. I, I think it was conjured up and created. The one area in which he was culpable was he allowed a circumstance to arise several times where late at night he and she were the only ones left at the office. And that was wrong. Because now you have no protection. You have no, no way to – and you're basically leaving the way open for a charge, for an allegation. Uh, and so the, the best advice is to never be alone. Uh, never be in a situation where there's not a third party present with a woman where there would be a possibility. That's just good advice to guys. And, uh, and I share it with you, gentlemen. If you, know, if you wouldn't – if you don't want something untoward – to happen to you don't say i will always be able to resist it my own wife by the way if you were to ask my own wife uh if you you know is your husband been faithful to you she'd say yes and they'd say how do you know she would never say because he would never sleep with anybody with any other woman or he'd never be tr- she wouldn't say that she'd say because i know that he would heed the directive of ancient Jewish wisdom of not being alone. And if you're not alone, then it's impossible for anything like that to happen. But to wait until the hormones are flying and the temptation is overwhelming and then have to say, but I don't want to betray my marriage, that is, you know, you, you have to pray you're not ever put in that test because there is ultimately no way of being sure how you're going to come down. In that circumstance, best thing, stay away from that circumstance rather than having to face it and, and make that decision. So, uh, but in this case, you think to yourself, married to almost married to Elizabeth Hurley, and he has to go to a fifty-dollar a session, uh, ugly, frankly, prostitute in on Hollywood Boulevard. Wow, and and this is Hugh Grant. Plenty of money, good looks. What is going on there? Right, it's a real question. Would you not agree? Let me uh, let me intensify the question for you, if you like, and let's go back to the year two thousand and eight. Uh, two thousand and eight, uh, the governor of the state of New York was a man called Elliot Spitzer. Now we'll leave aside for the moment that. Uh, He was an unpleasant man. He was a disliked man. Um, He was a very self-righteous man. He was a man who built his career on prosecuting other people. Very few, by the way, very few of his prosecutions subsequently stood up in court. But he made a career out of very high-profile prosecutions, carting people off in handcuffs, uh, high-profile press conferences and perp walks. And this is how he built his career as a prosecutor. And then he ran and won as governor of New York. As I say, not a liked man. By the way, interestingly enough, he prosecuted um, prostitutes and prostitution rings fairly often, quite a number of times. And uh, what happens? In 2008, Um, There is some investigation of large money transfers, more than $10,000 wire transfers that had to be investigated, and then there were also a state of New York charges that he charged to his business for uh, hotel rooms at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C., where he didn't have business, and yet he traveled to. And investigations began, without him being aware of it, chiefly because – uh, this is very common for public uh, officials. The fear is that they're being blackmailed. So when there are large-scale uh, money movements, any time anybody transfers more than 10000 it, it becomes a federal reporting requirement. But in the case of a federal official, excuse me, of a public official, even more than that, so, uh, so they, they, they quickly explore this for fear that he was being extorted or shaken down, And one thing led to another. What did they discover? That the checks were being written to an organization or a front organization for uh, an entity called the Emperor's Club VIP, which was essentially uh, an organization that provided um, women uh, to men on on a strict fee schedule. And it it was not inexpensive. And Eliot Spitzer was known as client number nine. You might remember the story. And uh, he visited with this. Uh, I think she was 22 or 23 at the time. Her name was Ashley Dupree, uh, if that rings any bells. And um, he'd visit with her roughly uh, once or twice a month over a period of six months. And, uh, you know, the Mayflower Hotel was, was one of his regular points of assignation. And, of course, this all came out. And uh, he, uh, he had a, um, a famous... Uh, Press conference at which he got his wife. I'm saying got. I don't know that as a fact. But she looked so miserable and so unhappy and so not wanting to be there. As by contrast, by the way, when Hillary Clinton appeared next to her husband, you might remember I did not have sex with that woman. It was the whole saga during the Clinton presidency. Uh, when you looked at uh, Hillary next to her husband, go back and look at some of these video shots, by the way. She does not look at all as if she was pressured to be there, and I don't think she was. I think her main anger was – again, I don't know. I'm just telling you my impression. My impression is her main anger was at uh, Bill imperiling their dreams, uh, their career dreams, and possibly her 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 career future as opposed to the betrayal of the marriage, which you – know, my sense was there wasn't much to begin with. So um, she did not look put upon and unhappy to be there. She looked quite gung-ho with, with trying to uh, deflect criticism from, from Bill. And many, many feminists at the time accused Hillary of, of just rolling over and not standing up for herself. Um, but that's what she chose to do. But if you take a look at the press conference of Eliot Spitzer, uh, who by this time was publicly disgraced, his wife, Silda Wall, her, her maiden name was Wallspitzer, Silda Wallspitzer, uh, two years older than him, by the way, at the time. <laughs> I say at the time. Guess what? She still is. Uh, although they're no longer married, they're now divorced. But at the time, she sort of stood by her man. But the look on her face indicated very clearly this was not where she wanted to be. And, um, and one of the things I was struck by is, uh, you'll pardon me, but um, she's a very good-looking woman a slender, elegant, very pretty woman. And so, again, look, um, at the time um, she would have been – she would have been, uh, what, at the time, maybe 48, 49, 50, something like that. Uh, He was two years younger. Um, But, you know, certainly – uh, a woman that, that, that any man could be proud of, she, she's a, a good-looking woman. Now, again, uh, a 49- or 50-year-old woman is not a 23-year-old woman. I mean, I, I understand that. And so in this case, unlike the Hugh Grant case, I'm not, I'm not saying, what did he see? And I'm like, why on earth would he have done that? That part of it I can sort of understand. But what I can't understand is the high risk of it, Here's a guy who knows he has a lot of enemies. He hasn't made friends. He's not a likable man. Uh, he's a vindictive man. He's a petty man. And he had a lot of enemies, uh, correctly, rightly so. Uh, and this is a guy with, I mean, he's governor of New York. He's, he's looking at a presidential, but he's really on a streak. He's an heir to a massive real estate fortune. He's got everything going for him. He's got three young daughters. Why? Why? I mean, my goodness, what's going on here? So what is going on here? Can you answer that? And if you cannot, then you need to stay tuned because uh, this podcast is about answering uh, that question. We're going to see a number of scenarios of that question, but in all – In all of the scenarios, the basic question is is one we need to understand in order to adequately unpack the complexities of this aspect of uh, ancient Jewish wisdom that we're studying and this aspect of male-female relationships. And uh, I know this sounds a lot like a commercial, and uh, the reason is because it is a commercial. I see nothing wrong with commercials. I'm not in the least bit embarrassed about uh, telling you how I serve other human beings. This is one of the reasons that uh, in Jewish culture, it was very common to choose a last name that publicized your career, your profession. And uh, I I haven't got time now to give you all the many, many, many examples of that. But um, we we did that because we wanted people to know how we can serve them. It's like handing out business cards, except much better. And uh, one of the ways that I serve you is not only through the podcast, Uh, but through the the creation of resources that delve more deeply into many of these topics and uh, provide you with, in this case, an audio CD that you can hear more than once. And uh, I wouldn't speak about it if I didn't believe it could help you, if I didn't believe I'm doing you a favor. And I think I'm doing you a favor because of the feedback I get, of the testimonials of all the people who thank me for how uh, this short one-hour CD program was able to radically transform how they lived their lives. Uh, Go and take a look at it at my website, www.rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, if you head over there, you will search uh, in the store for an audio CD called Festival of Lights. It's all about the holidays celebrated this time of the year. And the subtitle is uh, How to Transform Your 24-7 Existence into a 25-8 Life. Uh, So do yourself a favor and do me a favor. Make us both happy by heading over and getting yourself a copy of that. Quick break, and when we come back, moving on with trying to understand this strange question in male-female relationships.
0: You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lapin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theBlaze.com slash radio. Box Sexton. Anyway, so they demand that Amherst become a leader in the fight to promote a better social climate, yada yada yada. Student leaders acknowledge and support the demands previously stated and currently being presented. By the way, this is just a snapshot. This is what this is the same stuff at all these schools now. And it's gonna keep happening. And
1: this is their motive. You know, occupy Wall Street has be, became Black Lives Matter, has now become campus uprising.
0: Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern
2: on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Your Rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, we're back, and uh, this would be the fourth segment of this episode. This is, by the way, the 21st episode. So uh, if this is the first one you're hearing, uh, there, and if you like it, <laughs> there are another 20 earlier ones that you can go back and listen to. Of course, if you don't like it, then I uh, would earnestly recommend that you do not go back and listen to any more. The last thing I want to do is advocate masochism. So uh, uh, here we are talking about, here's the basic question. Why would a Hugh Grant, good-looking, wealthy young actor, living with an absolutely gorgeous woman called Elizabeth Hurley, why would he go to a prostitute and why would the governor of New York who's made an entire career fighting for ethics and integrity in government, that was his his byline by the way, he ran for prosecutor ethics and integrity he ran for governor, ethics and integrity and he was planning a run for the president of the United States Yeah, President Elliot Spitzer the president who will restore ethics and integrity to government so a guy like that is so So vulnerable. You'd think that you'd think he'd be willing. I mean, he would do anything to avoid the risk of catastrophe of a scandal that would disgrace him publicly and end his career. And that's, by the way, exactly what it's done. Uh, And he gets caught with a a young prostitute in uh, in um, in Washington, D.C., And and there were issues of transporting money over state lines and uh, vice I mean, he was in so much trouble, and I have no doubt that uh, strings were pulled in order to minimize the actual prosecution. At the time, it seemed incredible that he would escape prosecution on a number of different fronts. But again, um, look, there are different rules for the wealthy, powerful, well-connected. There are and he is wealthy powerful well connected so he did not get prosecuted but he got disgraced and his career was terminated um, and again you know in as i said in, in terms of the actual attraction Hugh Grant is inexplicable in the case of Elliot Spitzer fine okay she was a young attractive girl okay fine but the downside was so enormous, and it's not as if his wife was terrible. She's, she's a very good-looking woman. So it's just all very bizarre, is it not? It's just weird. What is going on here? Well, uh, I know it seems as if all I'm doing is piling on the examples and the, the case studies, but um, I think it's important that uh, I lay out the whole picture for you. Um, this is the final piece of the picture, I think which is that um, after 9-11, okay, uh, some firemen came home from being at work on that uh, uh, frightful day, the uh, 11th of September, uh, 2001. Some firemen did come home from work that day. Many, many did not. And, uh, and that was the, uh, the worst day of their lives. I mean, the, 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 the men that they lost, the friends, the, the brothers they lost. Uh, you know, everybody, everybody knows what 9-11 was in the city of New York. And so uh, very understandably, you would think, although I will tell you they did not consult me. I was not their rabbi. But the New York Fire Department, what they did is they assigned – one uh, firefighter, one surviving firefighter, to attend to the widow and children of every uh, murdered firefighter, every firefighter who died at the hands of Muslims, and um, and you would have thought, you know, a very nice thing to do, to just have somebody who understands them, uh, and so. You know, you can understand a widow of a fireman would find it easier to talk to another fireman as opposed to an accountant or a a bus driver, right? If they would have asked me, if I was their rabbi, and I should have been because I would have saved them a lot of trouble, I would have said, your thinking is right, your tactics are not. Uh, You should assign somebody from uh, the fire department to each family, but it should be the wife of a surviving fireman, not the fireman himself. And I would have been exactly right, because guess what the New York Times reported in a big magazine story in May 2004? (laughs) Um, I I shouldn't laugh, but I'm laughing because it was so predictable, so absolutely predictable. Uh, what happened is that a very large number, a very high proportion of these uh, firemen who had been assigned to take care of a 9-11 widow divorced their wives and married the widow. Now look here. Look here. Bear with me for a moment as we explore this. And, uh, and please know, I, I'm not laughing. It's just so astounding. It's such a validation of everything I have been taught of biblical wisdom. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, when, when a man in, you know, when a, when, when a, a 45 or 50-year-old man divorces his 45-year-old uh, wife and he marries a 25 or 30-year-old young woman, I get it. I think it's terrible. I think it's destructive. I think the divorce is shattering. Everyone, the problems are full. But I get it. I understand. But what do you do in terms of wrapping yourself around a man who marries somebody, who divorces his wife, and marries somebody exactly the same age, the same demographic, a woman of the same age as his wife, with the same, probably the same number of children. So he switches a situation that he's invested in, and he's got so many years of his life in, namely a wife and children, to divorce them and now marry a woman just like his wife, with children just like his own, except they're not. How do you explain that? Well, I think you may be starting to get the picture, right? You may start, be starting to get it. Look, uh, here's another piece of uh, ancient Jewish wisdom. And again, uh, I am sure that many of you, particularly women now, it's going to be the women listening now. And I know who you are. It's you women who are going to roll your eyes and say, this time the rabbi has gone too far. What am I saying? I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, there is no such thing as a platonic relationship between men and women. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying don't dream of a male-female relationship where you say we're just friends. Now, the reason that I say that it's mostly my women listeners right now who are rolling their eyes and say, oh, come on, I've, you know, I've had plenty men friends, guy friends, who are just friends. There's nothing sexual about it. There's nothing even romantic about it. We're just friends. And I, look, I've... I mean, I've had this so many times when I've given speeches on this topic or I've done marriage seminars, I make this point. The women have real trouble with it, but the guys shut up. They look down at their shoes and they shut up because they know that they have been in many so-called friendships and they've known that the girl in the friendship thinks it's platonic and they've known that at the slightest opportunity, they would have gladly moved it into a sexual relationship. And what's more, it was very interesting, and by the way, uh, it's the Scientific American that uh, uh, publicized a lot of the research on this, which I found very, very interesting, because the research for a change actually confirmed the truth, validated the biblical reality instead of um, coming up with uh, something completely absurd where they've allowed their emotional advocacy to overwhelm the analysis no in this case they actually allowed the evidence to guide their conclusion and the um, uh, the evidence showed that in many of these so-called male female platonic friendships if the guy was attached to another to a wife you know if he was married The woman was even more inclined not to see any romantic aspect of it, to see, oh, it was just a platonic friendship with guys that made virtually no difference. If she was attached, if the girl with whom they were in this platonic friendship, you know, whatever, uh, they they co-workers or they commute to work together, whatever it is, uh, regardless of whether she was attached or not, they still fantasized about a sexual relationship. And so um, so I'm I'm telling you you just have to know there is no such thing. And now going back to the firemen of nine eleven, I have to ask you, what is the biggest um, what is the biggest aphrodisiac for a man? Perhaps perhaps to be more accurate, I don't want to say the biggest because there are different circumstances and there are other candidates for that title. So let me just more accurately say, what is one of the greatest, most potent aphrodisiacs for a male-female relationship? And the answer is to feel admired and needed by a woman. It's as simple as that. It's one of the greatest and most powerful compulsions when a, uh, when a woman admires you and looks up to you and expresses a need for you in, in any way at all, or even subconsciously expresses it where she feels it and the man can sense that he's, being, he's important to her. He's playing an important role in her life. That is an almost irresistible aphrodisiac, almost irresistible for a man. And, uh, and I think you can now see uh, exactly what's going on here. Needless to say, the reverse, the corollary aphrodisiac uh, for a woman is a man she can admire and looks up to, a powerful man, a man she senses could protect her. This is one of the reasons that most women, if they had their choice, would rather be involved with a man who's taller than them, smarter than them, but above all, richer than them. And this this doesn't make them gold diggers. This is not in any way a denigrating thing about women. This is how you were created. And... uh, And there's no question about it that if I had no financial potential, my wife would not have gone out with me and she would have been right not to go out with me. One of the most disturbing aspects, the opposite of an aphrodisiac, the biggest turnoff for a woman is a man with no sense of ambition. So, again, if some of these things are are disturbing, go back and re-listen to the first segment of today's show because uh, I I stressed there how important it was – to to be able to at least hear things that you disagreed with, hear things that even repulse you, but to objectively evaluate them and weigh them up on the basis of the evidence, not on the basis of your surge of emotional hatred for what you're hearing. And and so now, if we go back to uh, the 9-11 widows, you can see exactly what happened. These widows are all of a sudden thrown into close proximity with men who are their husbands' buddies, their husbands' brothers. It's almost like a biblical leveret marriage where there's a natural feeling of closeness. And what is the difference between these women to to the live firemen who are in the attending role? What's the difference between these widows and their wives? Their wives are busy. Their wives have a routine. Their wives have a sense of security. Their wives do not show any sense of needing them in any way at all. And this happens. Look, it can happen in a marriage where after a while a wife, she doesn't express or perhaps even feel any real need for her husband. What happens if she has her own job and her own career? All that does is intensify what we're talking about to an even greater extent. But now this woman who's alone and confused and hurting and suffering, along comes the strong fireman who understands exactly what she's going through because he has a wife who's been through it. And he understands and they can mourn together. And she needs those broad shoulders and those strong arms around her and she falls for him but that's understandable that's very understandable Uh, many many female executive assistants fall for their bosses but why does in this case the fireman fall for the widow he's got one just like her at home it's his wife yes but his wife Doesn't need him. This woman does. And he is astounded at the thrills that surge through him upon that realization. And he's astounded by the feelings of potency and virility that suffuse his entire being because he's with a woman who needs him. And what's more, he's being encouraged to be with her. He's a hero for being with her. He's taking care of her. And in taking care of her, all his feelings of masculine protectiveness are aroused. All her feelings respond with need and appreciation and admiration. And his surge of potency and virility are too much to resist. He divorces his wife and marries her. And this happened in large numbers in the first year or two following 9-11. Okay. Quick break. Back in just a moment.
0: The Blaze on Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin.
2: Don't miss
1: and stew. He goes downstairs and dishes out ice cream, two bowls, and I already told him I don't want any. Not no, you any. didn't tell me until after yes, I it out. No, yes, you not. I don't want any. He I had already dished it out. He brings up two bowls. I don't want any. I told you that. I'm I sick over this game. Please I can't eat ice cream. Please he ate, <laughs> <him bowl>. <laughs> <He> <laughs> ate a bowl. <laughs> <a laughs> what am I supposed to do? Wait. Let it melt?
0: Pat and Stew, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Okay, uh, here we are, segment uh, segment number five of today's show, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I endeavor to become worthy of the title of being your rabbi. Thank you so much for being part of the show, and uh I would also like to ask you to visit my store at rabbdaniellappen.com, and uh, particularly at this time of the year, I'd like you to uh, read about and see if it would suit you. As I think it would, a uh, CD, uh, an audio program called Festival of Lights, and uh, and I pointed it's, it's there are several coincidences here. And you know what I think about the word coincidence, but uh, one of them is that the uh, holiday of Chanukah falls on the 25th day of the Hebrew month of Kislev. Christmas, of course, falls on the 25th day of the civil month of December. Uh, Chanukah, obviously, is called the Festival of Lights, and that's the name of this audio CD program I'm speaking about, Festival of Lights, How to Transform, your twenty-four-seven existence into a twenty-five-eight life, and uh, yes, indeed, and and sure enough, one of the things I love about Christmas is how homes get decorated with what lights, and at exactly the same time in Hanukkah, what are people putting in their windows? The Hanukkah lights. That's right. So there's there's a lot more to this than meets the eye, and uh, and uh, particularly if your eye is shaped by Greek philosophy instead of by biblical philosophy, why then you really need an attitude adjuster, uh, which is precisely why you should go to my website, youneedarabbi.com, and uh, visit and take a look at the audio CD program called Festival of Lights. That is the commercial for this segment. And uh, uh, for, for now... I have to tell you, we've see. we we've got to go back now and explore uh, whether this woman who was having affairs with married men, um, as, it, as it were, is she going to heaven or hell, as it were? That's really the sort of question here. Um, is she a, a saint or a sinner, or like most of us, probably somewhere in between? But um, in order to um, get a little bit of a clearer handle, I've got to tell you one more thing which is one of the most unusual speeches I was ever engaged to give. And uh, I was approached – this is while I was living in California, (laughs) as as you could imagine. Um, I was approached by an organization – I'm not going to give you the exact name, but it's an actual organization, uh, Mistresses of Married Men. That's what it's made up of. And uh, they were having a Christmas Eve party, and I was invited to speak, and I I said – uh, you know, why are you asking an Orthodox Jewish rabbi to come and speak to your organization? And she said, "Well, all the uh, Christian speakers are at home with their families, so we figured you'd be available." And I said, "Sure enough, I absolutely am." And uh, so I went off and and met. There were 300 women, my friends, 300 women in a uh, uh, in a big ball in a in a in a sort of a big a big gathering room of of a los angeles hotel and uh, and i uh, spent the well, i spoke to them and then after that i answered questions and even then i wasn't able to leave because i was so intrigued by it i really was uh, you see there were this was a support group and there was a lot of crying that night because their um, paramours the men they were involved with we're all home with their families. These guys were not leaving their families for these women. But I got a real-life opportunity to meet 300 women who are exactly in the position of this woman I started off the show telling you about, who was uh, uh, featured in a big story in the uh, Daily Mail of, uh, of England. Uh, her name was Gwyneth, by the way. And uh, and I'm talking to all these ladies, and they're sort of sobbing on one another's shoulders, and they're hugging each other because um, they're all feeling lonely and miserable. And, and And in addition to that, they're sort of asking themselves where their lives are going because for the most part, they knew that the men they were involved with were not about to abandon their wives and abandon their families, just as the Daily Mail lady recognized that these these were affairs. They were affairs. They were not courtships. They were not leading to marriage, and uh, and so um, I I did that, and uh, I had this uh, th- this interesting time with them. And then at one point in uh, while I was doing Q and A, uh, in response to one of the questions I'd been asked, uh, I said, "Look, let me ask you all a question. How likely do you think it is that?" Next Christmas Eve I am booked by a group of men involved with married women and who all are getting together to weep on one another's shoulders and give each other support because they're all feeling so lonely because their girlfriends are with their husbands and children on Christmas Eve instead of with them. And that was the first <laughs> that was the first time I, I sort of got a really hearty burst of laughter from these sad ladies. Um, and I was quite happy. They, <laughs> they really they laughed for a good few moments um, at the absurdity of it, because they knew as well as I did that that was completely unthinkable. Now, that thought experiment tells us a lot. Right? It tells us that tell, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that men are not willing to share women, but women apparently are willing to share men. And again, I'm sure there are many of you who, who bristle and, and, and find repugnant what I've just said. But by now, I have a high enough regard for you that I know you have not turned me off. I know that uh, we're still together, and you're still listening. And that's, and that's good, because I'm going to try and uh, bring this all in for a landing – that I hope will be, if not entirely satisfying, um, at least helpful. And so it tells us that George Bernard Shaw might not have been completely wrong, in spite of the fact that he was a a cynical old atheist uh, when he wrote his plays and and he wrote uh, Maxims of a Revolutionary. And one of the things he said was that most women would rather have a share of a top-rate man than exclusivity over a mediocre one, most men, exactly the reverse. Most men want exclusivity over their woman regardless and, um, and are not willing to share the woman, um, even if she's an exceptional woman. Well, let me couple that with another little thought experiment. Uh, you all know the story of Cinderella, right? The the way the peasant girl becomes a princess. But um, what about if we reverse the story, the princess and the peasant? How likely is it? Do you think that uh, that the uh, princess marries a peasant? The only reason the Aladdin story, as Disney told it, was so alluring was that we recognize, as I've told you before, that this Aladdin was a prince in disguise in a way. He, he wasn't just a peasant. He wasn't just a poor, uh, ma- not more, ma- he was, I forget the word they used for him, but he wasn't that. He, uh, he was a noble character. But if I would tell you this, you know, there's two fairy stories. One of them is the Cinderella story. The other one is about a, a princess who marries a peasant in, in, a, in a small, living in a little hut in the forest. I think you all recognize the former is more realistic than the latter. Uh, it was very common in, um, in you know, the, the show Mad Men uh, on the AMC network. Um, and, you know, that, that scenario where women took up with high-ranking executives, women in the typing pool, women who were secretaries or assistants, uh, became girlfriends and very often wives Of the men who were the senior executives, very, very common. How often do you think it went the other way? Now, you might say they didn't have female executives. Then you're right, but they got them now. And even now, there are affairs very common in marriages between – and this is why so many companies have uh, sex harassment policies, because they're all worried about the extent to which it disrupts a business when a high-ranking male has a relationship with a lower-ranking female – How often do you think it happens the other way around? I'm not saying never, but which is more prevalent, that high-ranking men have relationships with uh, less affluent women or very affluent women have relationships with less affluent men? Here's another example, and again, less common today, but there was a time when all stewardesses, remember when we called them that? They called them that on airplanes were young, attractive females. If you remember that, it, it probably dates you. Um, but there were even rules. Beyond a certain age, you didn't keep your job. Today, the unions have made it impossible. And so, frankly, uh, flying is, um, shall we say, a less, um, a less appealing proposition just in terms of the attractive people that uh, staffed the cabin of an airplane, if you'll pardon me making that observation. And so uh, – uh, but back then, how often – how often – did uh, stewardesses marry first-class male passengers. It happened all the time. As a matter of fact, it was considered one of the perks of uh, working the first-class cabin. And that's how it used to be. I mean, I, I know marriages where uh, successful executives mari- – I know particularly on Pan Am. I know two uh, couples that, are, that married that way. They met. She was a stewardess on Pan Am, and, uh, and he used to fly Pan Am for business. This used to happen. The other way around, not so much, right? And so, uh, uh, what you know, what what's going on here? Well, I said that uh, we're far more likely to see women willing to share men than we are willing to see men share women. Well, partially, is because when a man marries a woman of lower rank, in no time at all. She, she fits in perfectly because that's what women can do. And I'm sure you've seen it in, in your own life experiences, either with relatives or friends. But, uh, but you know, it, it happens all the time where a man marries a girl from the wrong side of the tracks. And within no time at all, if she's not a pleasant person, if she's not a woman of good character, she starts putting on airs and she starts uh, – you know how it is. But in no time at all, she moves into his world very comfortably. But when a woman marries down, he never comes up. It's a very important distinction. Think about that for just a moment. When a man marries a woman, she comes up to join his status, whatever it is. When a higher-ranking woman marries a lower-ranking man, it doesn't work. A lot of implications to what I've just told you. Again, I know it's hard to hear. I really do. But um, at least we uh, can begin to see a pattern emerging, right? So my point is, my point is that, and and, and here perhaps is one of the most difficult things I have to tell you, or it's easy for me to tell you, it's going to be a lot harder for you to hear it, and, and I'm aware of that. Understand it, and um, and if you can, if you can deal with this, I'm not saying accept it. I'm not saying believe me. I'm saying allow yourself to roll it around your soul, around allow, allow yourself to uh, massage it in your brain, to contemplate it, and to weigh it up for its whether it is accurate or not. You know, maybe I'm pulling the wool over your eyes. Maybe I'm telling you something that isn't true, but maybe I'm also telling you something that is very true and which you're unlikely to hear anywhere else. And that is, my friends, that um, if a woman has – if a wife betrays a marriage, it is a much more serious blow to the marriage than if the man does. Now, I know many of you women are going to be upset at what I'm just saying – and, uh, and look, my own wife, uh, when she hears me speak about this in marriage seminars, and we do marriage seminars together, uh, she, she goes to great lengths to, to make absolutely certain that we're not saying that this authorizes a man to have an affair. We're not saying it. We're not saying it's right. We're not saying it's good. We're not saying any of those things. But I am saying that as somebody who's done more than my fair share of marriage counseling, it's a lot easier to put together a marriage – in which the man has betrayed the marriage than it is to put together a marriage in which the woman has. Remember I told you that um, women are better able to share a man? That's why there's an organization of mistresses of married men to comfort each other because they all accept that their, their situation is, is a sad one. But the situation of a man who's sharing a woman with another man is laughable. It's ridiculous. And that's why we, in fact, society ridicules a cuckolded man. But we all feel sympathy for a woman whose husband is having an affair. It's a different reaction for men and for women, a completely different reaction. And so uh, what does this all mean? To the, the woman who is having an affair with a married man. And what does this all mean with respect to our own marriages and our own relationships? That I'm going to tell you coming right back. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the
0: areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip.
1: Because it ain't about money and fame and power. It's about that little person inside of you that does not feel good enough. It's the same thing that drives these terrorists in Paris. It's the same thing that drives the Mizu protesters and President Obama and progressives and everywhere. Is not having confidence and faith.
0: The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip, weekday mornings six to nine Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi
2: Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody, and uh, sadly, sadly, I have to acknowledge that we are now in the final segment of this particular show in the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show series on the Blaze, and uh, and that means that we've got quite a lot to do before we wrap it up and bring it in for a landing. And uh, one, of them, one of the things I haven't answered yet is – uh, why did Hugh Grant go to a prostitute? Why did Elliot Spitzer go to a prostitute? Um, you know, you might think, you know, a, a man who doesn't have a, a wife, doesn't have a girlfriend, a man who's all by himself, and who you know, you can understand in that situation. But these are guys with plenty money and with uh, certainly attractive uh, partners, and yet still, what's going on here? Okay, fine. Well, let's. Uh, Let's take a look at at something really important, and that is that uh, in our culture at the moment, uh, we are living in a time where feelings totally overwhelm and trump and outweigh obligation. And so people will often say, you know, because I don't feel like it, or I do because I feel like it. And it sounds almost dated. It sounds um, antiquated. If somebody says, well, I, you know, I felt it was my obligation, it's, it's not often that, that you get that, at least in a meaningful kind of a way. And uh, what am I talking about? Well, we all understand that in a marriage uh, the, the man uh, has a sense of obligation. He's got to deliver. He's got to, uh, he's got to support. And as I explained in, in an earlier part of, of this particular show, Um, the, the woman becoming an independent economic entity hurts the relationship. Um, the, the, um, extraordinary thing, I mean, there's fascinating studies on this, but, uh, but, but something which, again, if I told it to you as a thought experiment, not as a study, you'd, you'd think about it, you'd nod your head, and you'd probably say, yeah, I'm not sure I like this, but yeah, it's probably true. What am I talking about? Um, <laughs> I've, got, I've got interviews of um, large numbers of, of couples where, where the woman says, look, uh, I feel most drawn to my husband when he comes back from the gym. I feel most drawn to my husband when he's just finished a workout session. I'm most drawn to my husband when he's just done a run. And then um, and then she also says, sort of in, in a separate part of the conversation, she says, but I want my husband to share in the housework. Um, I go to work every day just like he does. I want him to do part of the housework. And then the interviewer says to her, Um, And so if – when you both come home and he takes the vacuum cleaner and vacuums the the room, would you feel more drawn to him at that moment? And sheepishly, she admits, she says, no. But you said you wanted him to share the housework. Well, yeah, in my head I do, but my heart and my body want a man. How would it be if he does more of the man things, if he takes out the garbage and repairs the leaky faucet and takes care of those things around the house – uh, while you're vacuuming or doing the dishes, okay, then I, I'd feel I'd feel more drawn to him. So what their heads say is very different from what their hearts say, which, by the way, is very often exactly the same for men. And so um, that's a very it's a very important point to understand uh, when it comes to women. And so when a a woman has her own financial career and she's working hard. Uh, in spite of the fact, by the way, that that doesn't necessarily raise the standard of living of the couple very much, given uh, something that Adam Smith laid out in, uh, in, his, in his great book on economics. I haven't got time to go into that right now, but another time we'll look at that. The part I'm talking about right now, however, um, is that which man is more likely to feel that his wife needs him? And I know, yes, it's only financial and so on, but think about it a man whose wife is a stay-at-home wife and he accepts the obligation to support the family or the wife who has her own career. You understand what I'm saying? The man, let me put it this way, the man whose wife is a hard-working, hard-driving career woman doesn't need her husband and she may feel, oh, I love him and I need him. Of course I need him. He's the father of my children. You know what? That's your head talking, not your body. That's your head talking, not your heart. And guess what? A man hears what your heart says. A man hears what your body's saying far more than he hears what your head says or what your mouth says. Very important. And, um, and so now you've got a bit of an understanding of what draws a man like Eliot Spitz or Hugh Grant to a prostitute. Because when you pay a prostitute, you have a different relationship with her. It's a relationship where you are the customer and she is the supplier. And the customer is always the boss. And it's thrilling for a man to be the boss of a woman. And you know what? For many women, it's thrilling to have a man who is dominant. But it's very hard for today's modern man to feel any dominance at all. With respect to his wife, who is earning just as much as he is, or maybe earning enough to be independent, or maybe earning more than he is. And now, in the sexual relationship, where is, where is, who's the man and who's the woman? And that is a very difficult thing. It's one of the reasons that there are men who are impotent with their wives, but wouldn't be with a prostitute, and are not with a prostitute. Why? Why? because of the nature of the relationship as we're speaking. And for a man, impotence is one of the very worst feelings there is. And so I don't know the details of the relationship between Hugh Grant and Elizabeth Hurley, but I do know she didn't need him. And even if she did on some level, I'm sure he didn't feel she did. And the prostitute is frankly much more appealing. Is she as pretty? No. Is she as beautiful? No. None of those things, but it didn't matter. Because a far bigger aphrodisiac for a man is being needed by a woman than how attractive she is. A um, uh, a uh, and and Elliot Spitzer, exactly the same thing. Right? Was she a woman who needed him? No, she was a little older than him. She had a very successful career on her own, and um, and in, and I'm not saying. You know, that there should never be uh, wives working in many situations, particularly in today's economic climate. It's it's unavoidable, but you at least have to know the dangers. Um, I'll give you an example, a question that comes to me very often, which is uh, where a wife says, I don't know what to do. Each time my husband has a business trip, every now and then it's to a nice location. He wants me to come with him, but I can't. You know, I don't want to leave my children. And I I explain, and this is something I I lay out very carefully and very clearly in an audio CD program on my website called Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden. But I explain that uh, for animals, it's okay for a female animal to put her children first because that's what nature uh, conditioned her to do. But a human woman, a woman touched by the finger of God, has to put her husband first. You put the children with your sister-in-law. You put the children with your mother. You put the children with your mother-in-law. You farm them out to friends. But if your husband says, come spend three days in a hotel with me, you jump. And I'm telling you really, really wise biblical advice. It's sheer folly to ignore this. Um, I speak about obligation, right? A man feels the obligation to go to work. A man feels an obligation to support his family and to do everything that he's supposed to do. Of course, a man feels that. He does. But the mood of the culture today is feelings matter. And so it's almost become a theme of the stand-up comedy circuit, the wife who says, I have a headache, the wife who says, I'm not in the mood, the wife who says, I don't feel like it. And uh, my dear friends, I say this with uh, trepidation. I say this with awareness that I could be misquoted and that I could find myself a, uh, an unhappy and unwilling target of widespread Internet vilification, but I have to tell it to you anyway. By way of caveat, there are situations where for emotional reasons or for health reasons uh, this doesn't apply there are times there are you know there are times in a marriage where for one thing or reason or another this may not apply but in general in general a wife should understand that she feels her husband's love in different ways he feels her love the way a husband feels that his wife loves him and let me let me be very direct about this is by her willingness to give her body to him. I have to say it. It's true. And for, and for many of you women listening, this may be hard for you to believe, and you, you may think to yourself, you know, what, you know what, I don't know what sort of animal this rabbi thinks my husband is, but he operates on a higher plane. He knows I love him. Okay. And, and I'm sure he does. But the extent to which you share yourself with him, the extent to which you give yourself to him, the extent to which you surrender to him is how he knows he lo- you love him. And the proof of it is, by the way, and I'm you know most couples have had this happen, guys will instantly recognize what I'm talking about. Ladies, I, I hope you understand this and recognize this as well. But um, when you withhold yourself, when you deny your husband, your body, you will notice that he very seldom will sit down with you and say, you know what, I need to talk to you. I feel very unhappy at the fact that we spend so little time together in bed. I'm very unhappy about how little. He's not going to do that because that is not the feeling that a dominant male wants to feel. That sounds like he's begging you for sex. Most men won't do that. Most men will retreat into themselves. They'll become sullen. They'll become silent. They'll become emotionally unavailable to you. And you probably or possibly won't have the faintest idea of what's going on because you've been raised, and look, I'm speaking about women in general, not you particularly, but women in general have been raised to believe that if they don't feel like it, it's fine. They have the prerogative. It's entirely up to them. And you're right. No man has a right to force his wife, but no husband should have to. And in the same way that you feel your husband has certain obligations, like to be faithful to you, you have certain obligations to him, and they very much include the physical. And, um, and does this mean that uh, in a marriage where for one reason or another the, the, the sexual part of the marriage has been in a lull, that this is justification for a man to go and have an affair? Of course not. You know that's what I, not what I'm saying. But things are subtle. They are nuances. There's, there's not such a clear black and white on everything. And so what we, we have to understand here is that uh, the Eliot Spitzers and the Hugh Grants of the world, yes, they had beautiful women in their lives, in one case a living girlfriend, in the other case a wife, lovely women. But at the same time, it's very easy for me to understand, and it should be now for you the appeal of the prostitute. And this, by the way, is also one of the reasons that prostitution flourishes, even in a time where the, uh, the level of sexual morality is so low that almost any man who's halfway sanitary with a couple of dollars in his pocket can go to a bar and find a woman for the night. So why would anyone use a prostitute? And I'm going to say something which I think is probably the last challenging and difficult thing that you'll hear in today's show, and that is that a better quality man would rather pay a woman for an association than seduce a woman. A higher quality man wants to give something in return. A low quality man seduces the woman, plays on her emotions – takes her to bed and then never calls again, breaks her heart, and she'll never admit it. But a woman who has been a serial victim of seductions is never the same woman she was before she went through those experiences. Women on American university campuses suffer from this extensively, and they try and develop male bravado to try and uh, deal with it, it's tragic. It doesn't work. It produces broken women who turn to other women for safety and for understanding because of the way they've been treated by men. The better quality man goes to a prostitute. The lower quality man seduces a woman. And so I'm not saying Eliot Spitz and Hugh Grant are high quality men by any means, by the way, but um, that is, uh, but that's very understandable. And that's why prostitution continues to flourish, why it survives in today's day and age, because it allows a man who at home has a wife or a, or a living girlfriend or whatever the situation is, um, who is so focused on egalitarianism and equality and sharing everything uh, that at the end of the day, he doesn't feel like a man, but he needs to feel like a man. So uh, is is this an excuse for a man in that situation? No, of course not. It's a reason to uh, find a good rabbi, a good counselor, uh, somebody who can help the marriage. And there are people like that before things get uh, into a bad situation. Uh, this woman, who uh, I started the story off today with, who has these, uh, who has these affairs with with married men, um, you know what? Not – I don't see it as the end – I don't see her as a terrible person in any way at all. Um, Is she doing this wonderful thing? Is it possible that she held marriages together? Well, I would be – let me put it this way, and I was wrong when I said the last provocative thing you'll hear from me. Here is the real last provocative thing you'll hear. Um, Counseling. uh, There's a couple come to me. The woman's had an affair, and uh, the man – and they're trying to decide. Should they put it together? Should they try and put it together? Um, in most ca- there are exceptions, but in most cases, there have been exceptions. I haven't got time now to explain the exceptions, but in most cases, it's a doomed marriage. You may as well end it and try and do better next time. How about when the man has strayed? In almost every instance, I'm able to repair it. The woman is told by her friends, by if she's dumb enough to talk to her friends, she deserves what she gets, which is, oh, leave him, you, the horrible guy. Look what he did to you, betrayed your marriage. And in some cases, that is the correct answer, but not in all. Because in all cases, the role and the life of a woman who's been through this with a genuinely atoning man, who really, really is going to make sure it never happens again, and eventually and gradually they rebuild their trust. A woman in that situation, she's far, far better off in nine out of ten cases. Exceptions, yes, but in nine out of ten cases, she's better off than a divorced woman is. Okay. There are exceptions, but overwhelmingly, uh, the majority of cases where a couple comes to me and the guy has betrayed, I'm able to put it together. And I know couples that many, many years have gone by. I've been thanked. I've, been <laughs> I've actually received gifts Uh, from couples in that situation. I know of only one, in all my experience, I know of only one couple where the wife strayed and the marriage was put together and survived to the present day. The overwhelming majority of those cases, because a man finds it far harder, and that's why there have been many polygamous societies that function. There have been no polyandrous, polyandrous societies that function. Uh, That's why you can sometimes see um, on the boardwalk outside my California synagogue years ago, I'd often bring my uh, congregants out to take a look at a guy walking down the boardwalk with his arm around two women. I mean, a guy with two girlfriends. Uh, Fine, yeah, tell me one was his sister, maybe. But generally speaking, a guy with two girlfriends, much more common than a girl with two boyfriends. That doesn't work. And so a wife who's had two men, if you like, no good, doesn't work. A woman, the other way around. And by the way, some of you may wonder where does all, all this come from. Uh, most of this comes from the book of Esther. And uh, in some of my material, I've, I've got this laid out more, um, more completely than I can tell you now. But, but bottom line, I, I hope I've laid this out for you in a way that is uh, helpful, entertaining, and educational. Above all, bringing to you in a practical way uh, ancient Jewish wisdom that can uh, benefit your life. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you appreciate it. I hope uh, you'll be with me again next week. For now, I uh, thank you very much for being part of the show. You inspire me to do it, as you know. And uh, for now, until next week, allow me to wish you a week of prosperity and of good health. God bless.
0: This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.